You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) This is our second intro (laughs) because our mics weren't working. And it's funny because I started off on the other intro for this Q&A making fun of the fact that JT was unprepared. And then while I was making fun of JT, uh, Jen let me know that my mic was actually not behaving appropriately. So... Uh, pride cometh before the fall, I guess. Um, the, 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 the crazy thing is that Jen's setup hasn't had any problems this morning. I know. That, I was going to is... say, you remember there were like two seasons where I couldn't get anything to work and then there was like this major delay. So I would be laughing at jokes that had happened 10 minutes ago. You guys weren't tracking with my answers, but you know. It's a Christmas yeah. miracle. It's a Christmas it's miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. Well, today we're doing our uh, hey, I, I Patreon. gotta stop you. Kyle, oh, why are no. you wearing a jacket? You live in Dallas. But it's it colder. It's yeah, cold, it's cold JT. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there are colder it's not just cold in Colorado. I'm not saying it's I, that's not what I said. Okay. I'm saying like it is usually cold. not cold in Dallas. Mm-hmm. I feel well, like you implied it. it. It's it's a little chilly today, so I put on this jacket. Now I do have What is open- chilly? Like, I don't know, 58? like 52? No, it's in like the 40s. <laughs> okay. Wow. Hang in there, guys. Yeah. Hey, we're doing what we can. Well, today is our Patreon Q&A. We just want to, again, thank the Patreon audience. Uh, you guys are the best audience in podcasting. We really believe that. You mm-hmm. guys keep it civil in the comments. You're very supportive of the shows. And we're really excited. I, uh, if you listen to the episode that released on December 15th, then you know that we're starting a new podcast in the spring called Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson. This will be our fourth podcast. You have Knowing Faith, Family Discipleship, Confronting Christianity, and then Starting Place. You might have begun to hear a tease for our fifth podcast, which will launch in the fall, which we'll give more details on as we get closer to the end of the spring. But I just got to tell you, like we've been able to continue to build what we think is a really unique network of strong resources because of the support of our audience. That's just – I know it's it, it could seem – uh, superficial to say that, but because our audience has been so strong, because the people who engage with these resources engage meaningfully and winsomely and charitably, it's just made it like, great, let's keep growing out this network. And I could not be more thrilled for starting place with Elizabeth Woodson. And it would not be existing in large part if the Patreon community hadn't been so supportive. So just want to thank you guys. You're a great audience. You're great fans. Uh, We're really glad to be in the conversation with you. So we do have your questions here, and you ask – the patrons always ask good questions and big questions. So here we go. We're going to move through them. There's a lot of them, and I'm committed to getting through every single one of them that we got before we recorded this on December 15th. So it may mean that some of our answers are a little tighter than normal. Looking at you, JT. (laughs) Um, Whatever. Let's go. (laughs) But uh, let's do a word count so far in the podcast. Five minutes in. Well, that's <laughs> fair. Um, all right, here we go. We're going to start with Austin. Austin, if we understand that it is Jesus in his spiritual body that sits at the right, right hand of the Father after his ascension, how do we resolve the tension this presents to God's unchanging nature? If before his ascension it was not Jesus in his spiritual body, particularly, but the Son of God that was at the Father's right hand. To be clear, I believe God is unchanging and that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. I'm having a hard time resolving this tension. So it sounds like 
the big question for Austin is if the Son of God, after the incarnation and the ascension, now sits at the right hand of God the Father in, he's calling spiritual body, I think he means resurrected body here, Mm -hmm. then does that present a fundamental change to God's nature? Yeah, that's a, is this this one's me. I'll take it. Yeah, Austin, that's a great question. And I was a, <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused by the spiritual body language. So if we if we don't get this quite right, if if what Kyle just said is what you meant is in his resurrected body, then I think I understand your question a little bit more. So thanks for asking it. And it's good. This is a question that theologians have wrestled over for the longest time, not just in his resurrection and ascension, but incarnation. If God is unchangeable, how does he take on something he's not, but yet not cease to be what he is? And that's the tension that Christian theologians have always held, is that now in his uh, resurrected and ascended victorious state, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is both God and man. And God endured no change, but now humanity exists in the presence of God. And if you're thinking about biblical theology— not just systematic theology, that's what the biblical authors are trying to communicate to us, is that now we're no longer in exile. Humanity, not just spiritually, but in in its fullness, because of Jesus's active obedience, can be in the presence of God again. There's a theologian, I forget his name right now, Kyle, you might be able to remember, that I used to use this quote in the, the training program about the ascension. He basically says, when we enter into heaven, we'll be greeted by a human hug. Something along those lines, like humanity in Christ is there to greet us. Not only are we entering into the presence of God, we're entering into the presence of a perfect human who lived on our behalf and is now resurrected and ascended and grants us his righteousness through union with him. So to get back to the, I think the very simple question you're trying to ask is, does God change? No. Is there a human who's named Jesus and he's the God man in heaven? Yes. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, if you're looking for a place in the early church where they're trying to just like, they're not getting specifically to your question here as it pertains to the ascension and the like heavenly session, which is the sitting of the Son of God at the right hand of the Father after the ascension. But Chalcedon is trying mm-hmm. to wrestle with this, particularly in the language around that the Lord only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Now, that's talking specifically about the two natures, one person dynamic. But I do think what's in play there is that the assumption of human nature doesn't compromise, change, or divide the divine uh, the divine substance. Uh, and uh, I think that's... Again, I think that's kind of how they're trying to wrestle with a specific part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen asks, when reading the Psalms, there are often references to statutes, ordinances, laws, testimonies, commandments, and precepts given by God, often in the same sections. Is there a significant difference in the meaning of these different words? If not, any ideas as to why multiple words seemingly conveying the same idea are used? I do have ideas, Stephen. I have ideas on this. Yeah. There so there's there's two ways to think about this, and I think both are important. So a really uh, succinct place to find this, um, in his question, Stephen noted Psalm 119, which we are all pretty aware is one of the most repetitive psalms you could ever read. Um, but in Psalm 19, you get a little snapshot of this, um, starting in verse 7, when it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So I actually like this example because you can hear, obviously, we've talked about 
about many times that repetition is the mother of learning. And so part of what's happening here is it's a memory tool to help people um, really get an idea ingrained. Is there a significant difference in these different terms? Not really. Um, but sometimes an idea is linked that is helpful. So like if you heard in the passage I just read, we had dropped into the middle of law, statutes, precepts, and commands. We had the fear of the Lord is pure and enduring forever. So then we can understand that observing God's statutes is a, is a way of fearing God, of demonstrating right reverence to God. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this idea in the Psalms of um, taking, taking a phrase and repeating it from slightly different ways to amplify our understanding. So it could be just um, emphasizing or it could be amplifying, but it's meant to be an identical or a similar idea that is said over and over again for the purpose of a sticky thought. Boom. That's good, Jen. That's right. Uh, TJ, this is uh, this is our friend TJ, I think. Uh, TJ, TJ! Is the, the train the church cohort. All right, man. Uh, I'd love to hear each of you discuss the relationship between small groups and learning environments in your respective churches. How can these two spaces best complement one another without feeling competitive? Yes, TJ. Mm. I uh, just had a three-hour elder meeting last week to talk about this question. Um, uh, so uh, here's what I'll say. Uh, we have found that with learning environments, um, you've got to be very clear about what your goal and your target is. Like you got to have an outcome. And we often think that the outcome for learning environments is learning. It's depth. It's, it's growing in knowledge. It's study. It's teaching. It's discussion. We found that small groups can really struggle with that kind of structure and curriculum engine. And so I think that the best way to think about the compliment is that small groups are uniquely able to do fellowship, the one another's accountability, prayer, kind of life together kinds of things and life on mission. Small groups are uniquely able and effective to engage neighbors or neighborhoods or communities or local ministry partners. Uh, Classes, on the other hand, or learning environments are uniquely capable of providing a quality controlled teaching, uh, learning and study in an environment where there's higher structure and predictability. So that's, I would caveat that just a little bit to say that my experience of particularly the the evergreen Bible study spaces is that they're really nice front doors for people who are visiting because they are limited in length. And so, whereas with a small group, you're kind of signing your life away for a long, long time. Um, Sometimes the classroom environment is a less intimidating first step where they start to form some organic relationships before committing to a home group setting. There we go. Love it. Hannah, thank you uh, all for your work in ministry. I've learned so much from Knowing Faith this year. It was my top podcast on Spotify Rap this year. Let's go, Hannah. All right. <laughs> Love to know what a typical day, week looks like for everyone. Let's just do, let's go with week, typical week. Work, church, family, fun, rest time. Uh, JT, what's a typical week look like for you, JT? Man, you know, this is a good question. As a new pastor, I'm still kind of learning how to develop some healthy rhythms and habits, and it depends if I'm traveling a specific week or have an elder meeting, those kinds of things. But broadly, I try to think about my week starting on Sunday, whether or not that's right biblically, doesn't matter. <laughs> it just is, it's just what happens. Like my my work week starts on Sunday in terms of getting up early. I'm up usually, you know, four or five on Sunday morning, and I, currently we have two services at Storylines. So I'm at the church praying, thinking, preaching hanging out with our church, ministering to them uh, all morning on Sunday. And I try to come home. Like, I'm, I'm home typically by two or three, get some rest uh, for 30 minutes or an hour to try to decompress. I, I think Kyle and Jen know, but some of our listeners might not know, I'm kind of an introvert. Like, I love 
people, but man, it's exhausting. Like I come home Sunday, I'm like, okay, I need, I need a four hour nap. Macy <laughs> says the Holy Spirit leaves me for about 30 minutes. So then, <sighs> so then I try to rest up a little bit and then I try to get time with my kids. Like Sunday night is just great time. Like we'll go outside in the backyard, we'll play. So Sunday is probably my favorite day of the week. I get to preach and I get tons of time with family. I love it. And then Monday through Thursday are just kind of different moments of, I've got staff meetings, I've got elder meetings, I've got some one-on-ones. I try to have some distinct time where I just try to get some content prep, like deep work. Uh, if that's something that you guys don't have, I would really encourage that. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get, it's really hard to uh, to protect, but like put three or four hours on your calendar every week for, I'm going to pray, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to write, I'm going to think, I'm going to read. Uh, and then I, another part of my week is I try to work out three to five times a week. This week, I'm failing, I'm failing <laughs> this week. So we'll see how, how quick we get done with these podcasts. But so th- those are kind of the basic rhythms. And then Friday and Saturday, I really try to be off. My kiddos uh, are obviously in school on Friday. So Macy and I will try to go to breakfast together, get some time. And then Saturday is full of like, sports, all the sports for the kids. Yeah, Mine's a little different um, because my my main ministry day is Tuesday. We do the Bible study Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening. So um, I work at the church full-time. So Sunday is is a work day for me, but um, it involves, you know, being present for all of our worship times. And then I usually use Sunday afternoon to tackle some email. Um, and then Monday is teaching prep, for me, it's like my last opportunity to get Tuesday's teaching right. So it's not that I do all of it on on Monday, but I've reserved time on Monday for that. Sometimes I use Sunday afternoon for that as well. Um, so I have a few standing meetings that are virtual because we're only in the office two days a week, which leads me to Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday and Wednesday are solid meetings for me usually. Um, and then Thursday, I hold for study. And, and I occasionally have coffee with people on Thursdays if I have um, room with my study schedule. Friday and Saturday, if I'm not traveling, I am staring blankly trying to get some rest. And that is why if you're waiting for me to come and travel to your area, you may be disappointed because I have cut my travel way back to, uh, to accommodate better rhythms of rest. Oh, and then, yeah. so for family time, it sounds like I don't have any, but I do. Um, my family is serving in a lot of the same spaces that I am at the church. So one of the things I love is on Tuesday nights, we we have a quick family dinner together uh, every Tuesday uh, before we all head off to Bible study or whatever our space is that we're going to that night, which is really fun. And I mean extended awesome. family. So, yeah. That's cool. Love that. Uh, if you're waiting for me to travel to your area, uh, holler at your boy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, uh, my uh, my week. I work Sunday through Thursday, and uh, I mean, so, like Sundays are what they are. You know, you know what Sunday is. We we'll preach, and we have, typically have prayer nights on Sunday nights, and then Mondays I use for study and for like content work, sermon prep, teaching prep, all that kind of stuff. I, I have meetings on Tuesday uh, from morning to evening. It feels mm-hmm. like. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday are just kind of hodgepodge their meetings and their content work, deep work, maybe a few coffee appointments. My evenings are a little bit more regulated. I typically, uh, on Monday nights, we host. On Tuesday nights, I'm teaching or it's a just an off night. Wednesday nights, we do family worship. And then on Thursday night, it's basically our Friday night. So that's like, we might go do something with the family, might go on a date, something like that. And then Fridays, we have dinner with the same group of people every Friday. Um, so that's fun. That's uh, nice. We enjoy doing that. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. 
Karen, a teen who lives in my home, really struggles with the ins and outs of a foundational concept of my beliefs. I'm not sure which part I've I've explained poorly or how to answer his question. Here it is. Adam's sin resulted in all humanity being born with a sin nature. Without Christ, we can't not sin. He believes it would have been more just for God to give each individual person a fruit on the tree moment before they automatically receive a sinful nature. If they fail, so be it, then that is their nature, and they can be redeemed in Christ. In his view, as it stands now, we talk about someone who isn't a Christian choosing to sin, and yet at the same time, we believe that their nature is that they can't actually choose something different. This seems contradictory to him. God really wanted to give us a choice. Why did he set us up to not be able to choose him first? Not us as in whole humanity, but as individuals. He doesn't think that we're human, so we'd always fail. Makes sense. Because the reason that is true is because of the sin nature. So if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't necessarily fail. Does that make sense? Would love your thoughts on good questions to explore. I'm sure his objection isn't unique. It's been a long-standing point of discussion between us. Well, first off, way to go, Karen, for talking with your team. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you're doing the right thing, and don't be so hard on yourself with yeah. – I'm not sure which part of explained poorly. Like, hey, he's a teen, and it sounds like he's got a critical thinker. You're making space for his questions. That's a really – like, you're doing a good thing. So just right. way to go. There isn't simple answers to questions like this. So it's okay if you're like scratching your head and being like, well, I don't really know how to answer. Because guess what? We can speculate all day long about why God would have done this or that or whatever. The story of redemption, the plan of redemption, is that Adam and Eve did sin in the garden. And it's, uh, it is very clear through the New Testament's observations on the sin in the garden that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Maybe an analogy that you could use that would be helpful would be Adam was a representative on our behalf. And sometimes we're, we're not represented by the people we want to be represented by, but their <laughs> actions still do impact us. If an ambassador in a foreign country does something like awful, it reflects on the country that he represents. That's why you want to make sure you have good ambassadors. Adam was set in the garden to be a good ambassador and he failed. Adam and Eve failed in their attempts to represent Uh, the character of God, and to walk in faithfulness to what he had said. And because of that, it was given over to everyone else. Now, the corresponding side to this, because he might go, well, I don't want, like, I don't want Adam to be my representative. That's fair. It's a, it's a point well made. I don't want Adam to be my representative either, but, but he is. And more than that, we actually, while we don't want the representational side on disobedience, we desperately want the representational side on perfect obedience. And so I think that the doctrine of salvation presumes that because we had a failed representative in sin, we have a perfect representative in salvation. And so I think that if the, if the other way had been the way that God had ever given every one of us a fruit on the tree moment, it, the reality is, is that while we might have been successful in that moment, it would have required divine perfection forever. And I do not think any one of us would have been able to provide that. And whatever the moment that would have occurred, it would have been a moment of failure and it would have been a moment of judgment. So I think we want the representational side on salvation. We just don't want it on sin, but it is both. Yeah, I do think we tell ourselves that we would have made a different choice in Adam's place. And um, that implies that God is unjust in his designation of Adam as our representative. Um, 
and I think it's, you know, and I'm not, I think you're, but here's something I would just say as a parent who has had teens, I'm thrilled that he is talking to you. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And what is better than giving him an answer is encouraging him to go find an answer and give him um, some places to look. So like, say, let's look at this from several sides, you know, like don't yeah. just say, you know, because what, what the temptation is, is to go and seek out the source that validates your current mm-hmm. space, you know, place where you're thinking. Right. And so encourage him, hey, let's look at an array of things. Let's you and I read some things together and then let's get together and discuss. If you come to him and pronounce your foregone conclusion, that usually is not, um, it, it's not going to solve the problem. And it also may not honor him developmentally um, because he is old enough to be thinking critically about these things. That's good. Kelly asks, on the doctrine of simplicity, is God wrath? I've heard God is love, but has wrath. But is wrath an attribute of God? If wrath is an attribute, then in the new heavens and new earth, after judgment day, what is that wrath directed towards? This has been such a fun season to think through. Whoa. Hard turn there at the end. Um, <laughs> Somebody jump in if you if you d- don't like my you answer. You wrote a book on this chapter. Well, yeah. I think I didn't do a chapter on God being wrathful, though. <laughs> Left that one out. Left that one out. Put a few flowers on the cover. Leave wrath out. Yeah. um, Yeah, for sure. No, um, the way that I I am learning to think about this is that God's wrath is actually a it's an expression of His love um, because when you love something deeply or someone deeply, and and um, harm is threatening that person, then wrath is your right response. It's generated out of love. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, when sin is no more and every tear has been wiped from our eyes, the expression of God's love as wrath will not be present. Would you say that, Mm -hmm. guys? Did I say that right? I don't know. About, oh, I would say that Kyle is shaking his head at me. I would say that no, it will still be present, but it will be directed as it has been directed from the beginning to evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I meant to un- I meant for believers. Yes. For believers, yeah. It would be directed towards right. unaccounted for evil or unredeemed or unatoned for evil. So hell is the forever expression of God's holy, loving wrath against evil. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yes, it will be, but in the same way that once we enter into life in Christ, we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer subject to wrath. We might grieve the heart of God in our sin or our disruption of communion with the felt benefits of God, but we're no longer objectively subjects of his uh, righteous anger and indignation against sin. But Satan, the demonic forces, and all of those who reject and rebel against God's free offer of grace in Christ will remain forever subject to his wrath, which is not a real peppy. (laughs) Now that I'm saying it out loud, I said it kind of like pretty bland, but... Can I maybe just offer one? I agree with everything you guys just said, but... The reason that this is true is because of another attribute that we haven't quite said yet. It's because of God's justice. Yeah. yeah. God is justly oriented towards evil with wrath, and he's justly oriented towards those under grace with mercy. Yep. And so you, we want a God who's oriented wrathfully towards, as Kyle just said, the demonic forces, satanic forces, those who've not accepted grace in Christ, because that's loving which is what Jen was saying, mm-hmm. is is these the all of these things, think of like a, a diamond, and as you turn it, you just begin to see facets, but it's ultimately, mm-hmm. and that's the doctrine of divine simplicity, one thing, mm-hmm. God. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. 
Uh, Brian, thanks for all you do. I benefit greatly from all your discussion. I was asked a question by someone in my church recently in a training program type setting for which I do not have and cannot find a satisfactory answer. Oh, gosh. Oh, I, I forgot this question. I'm so excited about this question. Okay. Because this, I feel like this one has come up many oh, yeah. times in the history of As it okay. should. She asked, how did women in the Old Testament share in the sign of the covenant? She was wrestling with how something as important as the sign of a covenant between God's people could be reserved to something only men could do, aka, aka circumcision. And like it, if baptism is the sign of the new covenant, was restricted to only men. This led her to conclude that women were being left out of an essential part of what it meant to be in a relationship with God and his covenant people. Do y'all have any thoughts on this that might help resolve that tension? You sound like you do. Brian, I do indeed have thoughts. Yeah. So some of these are ideas that I'm still working on. So just, you know, take this for what it's worth. Um, But obviously this is a question that's top of mind, or I don't know that it's obvious, but this is a question that's top of mind for many women who have, you know, looked back at this and thought, well, why, you know, why don't I I get, you know, men and women are baptized uh, under the new covenant. So why are only men, why do only men receive a mark in their flesh? Uh, under the old covenant. And um, so I would point you back to, and actually s- s- most of the uh, the writing, the interest around this is I, I have found uh, uh, in Jewish discussion circles, not in uh, Gentile or in Christian discussion circles, which is interesting to me. And I have some thoughts on why that might be, but that's for another time. So um, if you think about the promise in Genesis chapter three, the promise to the woman is that the one who would crush the head of the serpent would be the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so what you could argue is not that the sign of circumcision excludes women from uh, having a covenant sign, but rather it brings men into a covenant sign in a way that they weren't before. Because if you think about embodiment, right? Um, Men, when it comes to reproduction, uh, they don't bear in their flesh uh, the creation, the the birth of a child the way that a woman does. Um, and, And even the act of childbearing is a parting of flesh and a spilling of blood. And so a Hebrew woman would have had an embodied understanding of um, of what is necessary for life um, that a Hebrew male would not have. And so uh, n- would not necessarily have. I mean, this was the lived experience of every Hebrew woman who would, um, who would be at the birthing stool wondering if the child, uh, the male child that she was giving birth to might be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So I would say that we might imply that the mark, now there are other reasons that the mark would be given to males. The, 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 the family lineage, you know, is going to come down through men. So there are like practical reasons in terms of like, uh, identifying how property was transferred or how um, names were carried from generation to generation. But I don't think women should see themselves as excluded. I think women should understand themselves as um, as having a different embodied experience, which would mean that um, the Hebrew woman would would perhaps more easily identify herself with a bloody sign that's given to men, um, understanding the bloody signs that were a part of the daily experience of women in, in childbirth and reproduction. Too much? No. That's fascinating, Jen. I've never thought about it that way before. Yeah, me either. That's very interesting. Well, you know, it's, you know, I've had to, our friend Caroline, 
and I have had some, mm-hmm. we used to have long conversations about things like this in our office with the door closed. And you feel scandalous even trying to talk about it. But I, I do actually think that there is a general um, lack of imagination around this conversation among male commentators for reasons that I'm not saying are dumb. I mean, I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to think about that if I were a male commentator. But I sure. think it's one of the places where um, female scholarship might potentially add to these conversations because we just have a different vantage point on it. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to have to think about that more. Yeah. So like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on no, no, these no, yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Don't hold me to I remember it. the first time this question was asked of oh, me in the training program. Don't and I never that story. I mean, to, to your point at the end, like I'd never thought about it before. Yeah. And Caroline yeah. was in the room yeah. in the back. And she like crosses her arms like, what's he going to say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I was like, I don't know. I've even had, you know, the most ridiculed comment that I've ever made in a talk, which was clipped and pulled out of context, had to do with this, where I was arguing for the differences in embodiment between men and women. And um, and and I made a statement that every 28 days a woman's body tells her a parable about the shedding of blood for the renewal of life. And I mean, people lost their minds. And yeah, they did not like. They did not. Said. They said I was a feminist and a lib, and I'm like, or I'm an embodied female. You know, like it, it's okay to, to. Are those different? Uh, some people said it was oh, a gnostic oh statement too, which is so fascinating <laughs> to me because I'm like, how is that gnostic if? Over like the half the population nonsense. has this right. lived experience, right? So anyway, I do think that the idea of embodiment as it relates to conversations like this has probably not been given the attention that it deserves. Um, mm-hmm. if, if the idea is scandalous, then that tells me that, you know, maybe there's something missing in the conversation. Yeah, it's good. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Timothy asks, thank you, or, thank you all for this podcast. It's added a lot to my past year to have such a resource. Often, as referenced on past episodes, we hear about heated conversations related to women as pastors. We never hear such discussions about single male pastors. I can only think of a couple. But of course, Paul writes about singleness as something he recommends to the church. Was that only intended for his specific context, or is it biblically unfaithful to exclusively have married men with families in pastoral or deacon roles? Okay, there are maybe 10 great questions here. (laughs) I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a few observations real quickly here, Tim, um, because you've asked some great ones. The first one is that, um, well, let me start here. 
it is not biblically unfaithful to have exclusively have married men with families in pastoral roles. If you ask me, is it biblically unfaithful to exclusively have married men with families in deacon roles? Now we might be talking. Now, it should only men? What I'm, I don't I don't want to take a general thing here and make it a specific thing. Like, if the question is. Is a church biblically unfaithful if they only have married men with families, qualified married men with families in pastoral roles? No, they're not biblically unfaithful. If the question is, could a single qualified man uh, uphold the biblical qualifications to serve as a pastor? Yes. I think the answer to that is yes. You can have uh, a single man serve if they're qualified. That's the big... Keep in mind, we're not just talking about men as a gender category. We're talking about qualified men as a group of people ordained by the church. Okay, so a qualified single man could serve in a pastoral role? I think yes. Now, Paul's intentions in that passage to recommending singleness, I do not think are to be construed as the normative expectation for Christian men or Christian women for that matter. I think he's commending that singleness in an apocalyptic, eschatological, pioneering, missional moment could be a benefit because there is less responsibility at home. That is so. If there is a cultural context thing, I think Paul is saying, from my vantage point as a pioneering missionary in persecuted areas, there could be a strategic benefit to remaining single, as I have done. So, is he giving that as a normative expectation for Christian men and women throughout the world in the history of the church? I do not think that's the case. And I think the clear passages in the Bible make it clear that marriage is a blessing, that children are a blessing, all these things. If you're asking, why is it not as pressing? Well, that's maybe a different question. I would say that the easiest way to think about it is it's it's a historical thing. Protestantism um, in like small part, not in entirety, but Protestantism as a reformation away from Roman Catholicism in part was responding and reacting to the celibacy, lifelong celibacy and the lifelong uh, unmarried condition of the priesthood. And so Protestantism, and if you, it sounds like you've probably been operating in Protestant spaces, Protestantism has a historical reason why maybe the emphasis on the viability or qualified nature of unmarried men, uh, why that is a more or less concern than it could be, should be given Paul's passages. Because in some ways they were responding against some of the extremities of Roman Catholic practice on the topic at the time of the Reformation. So that would be, I think, the reason why maybe it doesn't feel so hot. So you're, just to clarify for listeners, you're referring to the celibate priesthood Mm -hmm. setting. Yep. Yeah. I mean, because Rome, I mean, to be a priest, you have to be an unmarried man. So for them, it's very clear. And part of that is founded in Paul's admonition. Part of that is also founded in the idea of having the bride of Christ and all these other things. I honestly don't think I ever knew to connect that passage to the Roman Catholic priesthood, which means I also need to think harder about (laughs) some of these passages. JT, was that out of line on any of that? No, I don't think so. I think the other thing I would highlight specifically as it relates to clerical celibacy in some Christian traditions is it's it's not just like, you know, well, here's the verse we have. It's more of a theological and canonical understanding of Scripture of if a priest, in a way that we probably wouldn't quite relate to in evangelicalism, is God's representative to people and people's representative to God, then they have only one bride. And if they have mm-hmm. two brides, both being the church and a and a, a wife, 
then that would suggest some for some kind of relationship that Christ does not have with this church. So they would not just look to verses that Paul would reference, but they would look to Christ and say, he only has one bride. Therefore, God's representatives as clerical priests to a congregation, to a church, should only have one bride as well, and that being the church. There you go. Kyler. Hello. There are many things I could say regarding the impact this podcast has had on my life, but thank you. It's likely the most concise version. Well, thank you for that, Kyler. I've been focusing on Luke during this Advent season and was freshly moved by the references to Mary treasuring up different revelations, experiences with Jesus, the shepherd's visit after the angel of the Lord, Jesus calling the temple his father's house. Would it be appropriate to consider Luke as connecting Mary's experience with Psalm 119.11? It seems to me that Luke is using the same language found in the Psalm, but filling in the blank with Jesus instead of God's word indicating to the reader that Jesus is the Word. I know we typically attribute this connection to John, but it is difficult to overlook the parallels Luke is making, especially when we consider how women are portrayed in his gospel specifically. That is interesting. Are you looking for Psalm 119? It's thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Dang. That's one that I felt like I should have known. In the King James, guys. (laughs) Yeah. The version that Jesus carried. Man, guys, if you ever wonder if Jim Wilkin is that. ice cold on biblical literacy. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. Huh. I don't yeah, I I don't know how close of a connection we need to draw. I do think Mary is presented as righteous, right? As a devout mm-hmm. Jewish girl. And so I do think it's appropriate to say, oh look, she's demonstrating what is articulated in Psalm 119.11. I don't know that it necessarily has to be a direct callback to that verse, but I don't hate the idea. I like it as a, you know what you might like, um, Peter, or not Peter, who asked this question? Kyler. 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 Uh, It's Kyler. But I think I'm, oh Oh, gosh. Did you type it it wrong? I think I typed it wrong. (laughs) If this is Kyler, shout out to Kyler. If it's Kyler, also shout out to Kyler. We're just going to call you Kai Worley for the rest of this episode. Oh man. Um, (laughs) Do you know what you might like with a question like this, Kyer or Kyler? <laughs> the Lord um, knows his name. <laughs> Peter Lightheart has a book that yes. I'm going to recommend to you called Deep Exegesis. And I think the way you're asking this question, the way you're making a connection, you might really like that book. Now, I will say to the rest of those listening, Patreons, when you first get it, and then broader audience later— I'm not making this book recommendation with no caveats. I'm saying that if you're interested in the kind of connection questions that Kyer or Kyler is making here, um, you might like that book, but you need to take it up and read it with just like, I'm not, it's not an endorsement on the book. I just want to be clear about it, but I think you might like it. So go check that out. Stacy. I've been waiting for this, she says. I've been making a list in the notes on my phone. I promise <laughs> it's not too long. I've learned so much from you guys. Stacy, uh, I'm going to take two of your three questions here. I hope that 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 honors you. Why is Ephesians off limits? I've been listening to you guys for about two years, and I don't think <laughs> I've heard the explanation. Do you know what she's talking about? Yeah. Okay. Why, Jen? Whenever I've brought up like yeah. Bible study or Ephesians, why do you, why do we treat it like that? Why do we talk about it like? I love that both of Stacy's questions have to do with things I have miscommunicated. That feels really <laughs> good for me to hear. Um, I make jokes about Ephesians being off limits because it's a short epistle, which means most of us have studied it multiple times. 
obviously it is a very important book of the Bible. Um, <laughs> and so you should study Ephesians. You should just get out there and study some of the other books too. It's just that pastors have preached a gazillion sermon series over it because it's easy to fit into the calendar. So that's what that is about. So like Stacy, oh, yeah. what the, your, your questions here have to do with things that we have jabbed at each other about for season after season. So I'm sorry if you're a little late to the conversation and we just now sound nuts. Um, and that's understandable. And so like your next question also. Yep. Yep. I waited to listen to Romans until I was studying it this fall. Jen referred to Psalm 139 as the lady Psalm. <laughs> I'm wondering why she called it that. I love this. Thank you, Stacey. Yes. You are, so you are hitting. You come on the podcast anytime you want. Yeah. Come on, yeah, Stacey. This feels really good. Yeah. Um, you can choose whether or not to give her this background. I'm sure she has good reason, but I'm curious. I love this Psalm and I find a lot of comfort in it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Why is it the lady? You should. Why, why do we? She should love the Psalm. Okay. Uh, men and women should love the Psalm. Um, I, that's a joke that I have often made because as someone who speaks at a lot of women's events, either the theme is Psalm 139 or at least one female speaker will do a message over Psalm 139. And also, Stacy, for uh, more context, I've, I've written on this in, in one of my books uh, um, to, to utilize Psalm 139 um, as a way of looking at the attributes of God, like to take the focus off of the, the human aspect of it. But the human aspect of it is lovely, and we should we should not um, we should not lose the beauty of, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made um, simply to uh, re, um, reinstate God where he belongs in that psalm. And so, um, but it's just typical in women's gatherings to give a self-esteem message related to the I'm fearfully and wonderfully made piece, sometimes at the expense of, of, the, of the, the emphasis of the psalm, which is actually that God is, is um, high and lifted up. So, I love Psalm 139. You should love Psalm 139 for the reason you stated specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just kind of a bit that I have at this point. Love it. Uh, John Paul. Hey, guys, I love your podcast. I've been so enriched by your discussions. My question is related to your takes on celebrating Christmas by incorporating <laughs> Santa Claus and your takes on celebrating Halloween. How do you go about making those decisions and giving grace to those who differ? This is the Jen Wilkin moment. John Paul wants us to be canceled. Uh, yeah, but does. I was canceled long no, ago on this issue. Yeah, I got canceled <laughs> years ago. So uh, we have a, I wrote a piece on this. You guys can, um, you can go look for it. It's called Santa Strategically. Um, and uh, it w- I wrote it years ago. And then every year it would pop back up again and I would just get lit on fire. And Jeff, Jeff had this joke that it, it was never Christmas until someone called me a lying syncretist. Uh, and so uh, the, that post is out there for you to read. Our family, uh, I know that people say that if you do Santa, you're lying to your children and that Santa's anti-gospel and your children um, will not trust you about the gospel if you lie to them about Santa. I believe there is a third way. And so um, in addition to letting our children read Harry Potter, and they did not turn out to be warlocks, just footnote. Yet. Uh, yet. yet. Um, we did uh, We did have a way of doing Santa, which we believed was honoring to the actual Christmas story that Santa didn't take over. Um, but we, we tried to honor a developmental phase in childhood where children are very imaginative. So you can decide whether you hate it or love it. And also Halloween. I love Halloween. I don't, I, I get that uh, demon worship, et cetera, but in, I, it's the night of the year when I see my neighbors and get to interact with them on a level that I don't otherwise. And so that does not mean that I wholesale love Halloween, but I love the opportunity that Halloween represents to to see our neighbors. 
Yep. And we do exactly what Jen said to do in that article. Uh, <laughs> we do like we do like the surprise about Santa thing. Yeah. I, I basically, right? the basic premise is that we told our kids there's a secret of Santa, uh-huh. and um, you should try to guess it and come and ask us if you think you're guessing the secret of Santa. So they knew all along that there was something about Santa to be discovered. Yep. So funny story, Jen. We've been working this, Lydia. Just turned six. She's not a podcast listener, is she? Because I don't want to. Well, no, not religiously, you know. (laughs) Um, She, you know, she hits the hot spots. So in October and November, uh, she's like, hey, uh, for Christmas this year, I was thinking about writing a card to Santa. And then we were like, well, have you figured out the surprise about Santa yet? And she was like, well, I think I have an idea, but I'm not, I don't know that I want to say it out loud. And we were like, okay, well, just like when you want to talk about it, like, let's just talk about it. And so flash forward to, we went to like a Christmas light show. And as part of like the package, there was like a, get your picture with Santa. So we go do the whole Christmas lights thing. We go, we see Santa and on the way out. And this is like, Lori and I looked at each other and we're like, facepalm parent fail moment. She was like, daddy, I was thinking that the surprise about Santa was that Santa wasn't real, that he was just pretend. And I got to tell you, now I'm sure that Santa is real uh, because that guy looks exactly like Santa. I was like, golly, this was such a. No, Santa is real. He's, oh, I don't want to say, I don't want to spoil if there's a kid listening. Um, But also I love, listeners are hearing Kyle say the surprise of Santa. And in the intervening years since I wrote this article, I know that the term secret used with kids has become um, a term that people don't like to use um, because it has, you know, Mm -hmm. it has implications. Um, So I support the use of there is a surprise to Santa. You heard it here first, guys. Jen supports surprise language. Yes, yes. Um, no, breaking this, news. this is exactly what we do. I remember reading this article, Jen. I think it was before I even knew you. Like this, this article. Oh, yeah. you're, you're, oh it traveled. Is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, wow. Uh, no, that's exactly what we do. This is going to sound kind of silly, but also real. I mean, when we think about Santa or the historical person of Santa Claus and Saint Nicholas, this is a great opportunity to teach your kids about the Council of Nicaea and Trinitarianism. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're uh, because nerd. I want to be your family. In all likelihood, St. Nicholas uh, was at the Council of Nicaea, an advocate of Athanasius' uh, confession of Trinitarianism and staunchly opposed to Arius. So you too can make nerd. Christmas a Trinitarian celebration. Also, God, I'll tell you who's— Both through the birth of the Son of God and through celebrating Santa Claus. Also, I'll tell you who's the spawn of Satan. It's that elf on a shelf, and we all know it. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Guy. Okay. That guy. All right, Danielle, if you could wave a magic wand. Now we got Danielle talking about magic. We're going to be canceled. <laughs> she sounds like a Harry Probably. Potter fan. She's my people. <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand, how would you organize a local church? You asked a few questions here. I'm going to go with the last one, Danielle. What are the first three ministries you would focus on establishing in addition to the Sunday gathering? JT, boom. You show up to a local church. They're worshiping on Sundays. There's nothing else happening. Give me your non-contextual, because so much of this is context your non-contextual three ministries in the life of that local church over the next five years. Uh, are you talking about how to organize the church in terms of like officers? You're talking about what I would do. No, 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 no. Just, just the ministries outside of the Sunday gathering. We're going to focus on that one. Uh, an active learning environment specifically designated towards men and women, men's and women's Bible studies, some kind of deeper form of environment, like a training program, institute, whatever home groups. Okay. Boom. Jen. How would I organize it? Like JT said. Yeah. Okay. Great. 
No one's asking. Um, no, wow. That's not it, true. It, 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 <laughs> hold on. Hyperbole. Pause that. <laughs> Just cut that part out. Brad. Okay, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> you walked right into that one. Uh, hi, this question is for Kyle and kind of random. Cool. Kyle, you have recommended several sci-fi or fantasy books or authors through the seasons. Lord of the Rings, Brandon Sanderson, Red Rising. So far, I've enjoyed all of your recommendations. Could you make some more? Um, yeah. You know, I'm glad to hear that you enjoy it. Just Because just about every time I make a fantasy or sci-fi recommendation, somebody who just maybe feels differently about the kind of stuff they want to consume feels like I should not be making sci-fi or fantasy recommendations. So... I'm and glad I'm you enjoy nerd. it. I'm the nerd talking about Trinitarianism. I'm, I'm and- glad I'm glad you enjoy it. Um, let me just uh, throw a few out, depending on what your reading is and if you're reading it to your kids. Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson is great. Can somebody, uh, Green Im- producer Brad, can we put like sword noises in the background here? Like dragon <laughs> spitting fire. <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah, I would say uh, I, I did just recommend a book on knowing faith that I do think is incredible, even though JT and Jen have made fun of me for it. Thursday Murder Club uh, by Richard Osman. It's fantastic. It's about old people in Britain that solve cold case murders. Uh, and it's phenomenal. It's not sci-fi or fantasy, but it's really good. Uh, the Terminal List, if you like military stuff, it's great. Jack Carr is really good. And then, yeah, there's another one I'm reading right now that I might be willing to recommend once I finish it. I just don't want to recommend it and it have something really inappropriate in the last 200 pages and then me have to feel bad about doing that. So, Amy, the six, there we go. The sixth command is do not murder. If my fingers tell me correctly, ha ha ha, why were the Israelites, I'm sorry, I read the ha ha ha, they're so bad. Like I was thinking, I'm a Also, she means the, the hand symbols, the hand signs that we gave for the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah. I did yes. not remember this at all. And yes. I thought the question, I was trying to, okay. Because Amy's question says, the sixth command is do not murder. If my fingers tell me correctly, shoot the gun at my other hand. I was like, Yes. What? So actually I've modified that to make it a little less awful. So rather <laughs> okay. than do this, just say, no, do not, do not. So you cover the okay. gun with your hand. It's much, cover it's, a, the gun. it's a very, um, okay. Yeah. Safe yeah, way to you, do hands. If you're teaching your children in particular, that's a better way. <laughs> um, to, yeah. See, I'm learning. We're all I love learning. That. Mm-hmm. Why were the Israelites multiple times commanded to kill whole nations, women and children? Mm-hmm. I always understood it to be so they did not mix and become like the other nations. But race, recently, I've been wondering how about how these two ideas work together mm-hmm. rationally. Mm-hmm. JT, this is this was one for you, I think. Actually, I think she said JT in here somewhere. So JT, I don't gotta, think so. That doesn't seem like. Ah, uh, she did. I think so. Yep. Uh, I, I was actually just looking something up a second ago. Is I could be misremembering, Jen. Is the sixth commandment thou shalt not murder? I thought that was the seventh. Um, it's the sixth. You're right. It is. It's not seven. Six. Seven is marriage. She wrote a book. Seven she is wrote a book That's standing right. at the altar. That's it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Uh, West Wing episode Shibboleth. Was this the first time Wait. I heard the story? From no, 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 no. You're, you're skipping just over, over the, the question. question, dude. What? N- Jennifer's question. No, the question that we just were talking about that we did not answer. <laughs> you just said why the West the, Wing. Murder. No. We're talking why about were murder. were the Israelites multiple yeah. times commanded to kill whole nations, women, and children? When you said this one's for you, I was like, this has got to be the West Wing one. So I'm let me boil this. it down. Is, is Israel going, is the conquest of Canaan actually murder? I think is the, no. essentially what no, the question no, is. No, no, it's, 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 it's not. And it, here's, 
I understand this, the ethics of this question. If you're reading the narrative of Scripture, this is, an, this is the obvious question you're asking. I think one of the best answers I've read, and I think we should also say this is a hard question. This yeah. is just one of those challenging things where we kind of let the Bible paint us in a corner and we say this isn't murder. God's commanding it while at the same time we understand that all people bear God's image. Uh, the best answer that I've heard given for this is that this is the uh, there was twofold. Number one, this is a protection of their affections and worship. Anytime that they, if, if they had not uh, uh, done what God's command, which they don't do, they become idolaters and syncretists. They stop worshiping just Yahweh and they begin worshiping other things. Secondarily, too, and maybe even the primary answer is this is about protection of the seed of the woman and the seed of mm-hmm. Abraham. Uh, if they don't kill, they will be killed in some respect. And so this is a this is a part of God protecting his people and enduring the promised seed that's going to come from the woman that's going to come from the son of Abraham that will eventually be also the seed of David. And so if Israel is annihilated, if, if Abraham's family is killed by those that are in the land, the Canaanites, then it is impossible for the gospel to come to fruition. Yeah. I, yes, that is really good. The other thing I would say is that we give far too much moral credit to the Canaanite peoples. They yes. were bad, bad bad people. Mm -hmm. And we know that everybody is broken by sin. But listen, there are times in which a nation should go in to squash evil in another nation. Like we don't look at Americans going over to fight in World War II against Nazi Germany and be like, wow, man, like those, those guys didn't deserve it. We're like, no, they did deserve it. They're bad, bad, bad people. The Canaanite peoples were not like the moral flag bearers of the world to crush them was to do a service to the entire world. I think that a good, but limited analogy. Okay. So everyone here limited here, um, because I, these are upset. It is an upsetting idea that you have to spend time thinking about as a believer, but a good, but limited analogy is when someone has cancer they do chemo and radiation so that they can kill bad cells and save good cells. And if you don't kill bad cells, then bad cells will kill all of the good cells. And so obviously that's a limited uh, analogy that mm-hmm. might help to understand. And if you want to understand just how wicked the the Canaanites were, all you have to do is go read in Leviticus all of the laws that are saying, That's hey, right. don't um, practice incest, don't um, um, be sexually depraved. All of those, all of those are not just in there as like God sat around brainstorming ways that people might act offensively. He's saying, mm-hmm. don't be like the Canaanites. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. Though I grew up in church, Jennifer says, the West Wing episode Shibboleth was the first time I heard of that story from Judges. What obscure or lesser known and taught passages of the Bible are some of your favorites and deserve more notice? <laughs> yeah, I've got one here too. I, uh, I preached this when I was still on staff at the village, 2 Kings 25. At the end of the historical books, God's people have just been subjected to exile through Nebuchadnezzar. And it can look like, goodness, the promise is is gone. And my favorite thing is, is at the very, very end of the historical books, you see this glimmer of light again, where we're told that King Jehoiachin, who's in prison, is actually released from prison. He's given king's clothes. He's given food at the, at the king's table. Uh, and there's hope. There's hope that the king is alive, which is exactly what Israel's hope is, and the king is going to save them. There's hope that they'll be released from prison, and there's hope that we can eat at the king's table. So when we're thinking about a theological interpretation of Scripture, I think there you have glimmers of the gospel, that the king is going to come save his people, and that he is going to give his people robes of righteousness, and that they will feast with him forever in the kingdom. It's a passage, it's like a paragraph, that if you're just reading it historically, you probably miss. Mm -hmm. But man, I love preaching that passage. 
I have a lot, but I'll give two. Um, the first is the story of Shifra and Pua. That's the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter one. They're almost always leapfrogged over to get to the part about Moses. And their story is critical to our understanding of the book of Exodus. Um, and then the other one are my, my girls, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. Those are the daughters of Zalafahad, who we find in the book of Numbers. And the daughters of Zalafahad. Fascinating. <laughs> go to the elders, uh, they go to Moses and they um, they intercede to be able to inherit, to be given a land grant when the land is being uh, apportioned out because there are no male descendants in Zalafahad's family. And um, and then Moses says, uh, when, they, when they plead their case, he says the daughters of Zalafahad are right. And then he gives them an inheritance. Those are good. What do you got, Kyle? For me, it's Saul and the Witch at Indoor. Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get into it, but that passage for that's me. That's the most um, sci-fi passage in the whole Bible, too. So it it's is. It really is. <laughs> right up your And I have like a whole, or I have like a whole argument for the existence of ghosts based yeah, off of that Yeah, I just throw passage. a dragon in and Kyle would just be, yep. he'd live his whole life in that passage. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Brittany says, uh, first, thank you for the work that you do on this. God has used it to grow me more than I can explain. My question, what about prophets and prophecy today? Is prophet a current office? What is a prophet today? What is prophecy today? Can just anyone prophesy? Does any of it exist now? A church plant I attend talks much more about prophets and prophecy than I've experienced before growing up in SBC churches. I feel lost where to start biblically studying this topic. I'd love to know your thoughts and would also like to know any resources I could look to study more on this. Thanks. JT, it's you. <laughs> I know you have thoughts because I've read them. Yeah, it's a good question. And, and this is one of those, I think, secondary issues. I'm going to talk about one primary issue related to prophecy and then everything else that we can hold with an open hand. Uh, one of the helpful ways, I think, to think about this is capital P prophecy and lowercase p prophecy. If somebody's claiming to be a capital P prophet as it relates to some kind of an office or saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God, that's a really serious claim. We believe that when God speaks, it's authoritative, it's true, it's inerrant, it's sufficient. And so when somebody says, God said to me, uh, they might be claiming to be a capital P prophet. And the Bible says that's, again, like a really serious claim. If they're if what they end up saying isn't true, if what they end up saying doesn't come to pass, then they are a false prophet. So if we're going to have the existence of the ministry of prophecy or capital P prophecy, we also have to be very aware that there's also then false prophets. And they are supposed to be excluded from the community of God, because there's, and this is the most important thing I can probably say in this whole answer, there's almost nothing more dangerous to do than to to claim to be speaking on behalf of God and to be speaking falsely, because God's word is good and it's true and it's light. Now, Paul highlights that that there are capital P prophets, if this is a helpful category for us to have in the New Testament, and that we should seek the gift of prophecy. And the way that I would define that is this is being in tune with the Holy Spirit, wanting to encourage and build up the church. There's been times in my life where I've either been frustrated or down or sad or even excited and having questions. And a brother or sister would come to me and say things like, hey, the Lord sees you. He's going to guide you through this process. And I don't know if this is from him, but I would really encourage you to be praying through this or thinking about that. Man, I think the Lord uses situations like that, people who are in tune with the Holy Spirit, people who who are are, are uh, connected to God's Word, who would come give words of encouragement to God's people. Yeah, if that's what we're talking about, I'm all in for that. There we go. Kyle, would you say it that way? I'd say it a little bit differently, but we're going to, but we don't have time. <laughs> uh, but I love, but I, but I agree, I agree with what you're saying. You would just push it a little bit further. I would. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd probably push it the other direction. <laughs> yep. And that's why we're a great team when it comes to prophecy. Uh, yeah. It's almost like we have a don't ask, don't tell policy uh-huh. on some of the sign gifts and the knowing faith. Yeah. Team, but, but also uh, hear the secondary nature of this conversation. Oh, exactly. So, that's we're exactly never, right. We don't argue about this. Like we're no, not. Nope. 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 We, we just secretly Which is think amazing. each other are wrong. <laughs> I just secretly think, well, it's not a secret. I think I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Shocker. Uh, Christine says, thank you so much for your ministry through this podcast, for your willingness to answer questions. Uh, one thing that y'all have helped me press into is a greater consideration of the distinctions within the Godhead, stirring affection for the triune God and each person in the Godhead in unique ways. Considering recently the implications of the Father as the one who sins, I'm seeing James 1.17, every good and perfect gift from the Father in a new light. The Father is the one who sent Jesus, sends the Spirit, and is the direct sender of blessings. Is that what I should be taking away here? Uh, so a quick heartfelt thank you, Jesus, upon receipt of rain, provision, may not be the best expression of gratitude when it should be, thank you, Father. Are we robbing God the Father of the worship due to him when we attribute his goodness to Christ? That seems to be the central question here. Hmm. Are there other ways you can think of that we commonly misdirect worship to one person in the Godhead when it's deserved by the other? Yes, so there are ways that we commonly misdirect worship to one person in the Godhead when it is deserved by the other, or m- probably more fitting to say, when it's more congruent with the role that one of the other uh, play. So like if we thank the father for dying on the cross, that's not something that the father does. So yes, we, we do uh, sometimes find ourselves misdirecting worship to one person of the Godhead in a way that's not fitting to their role. But I don't think we're robbing God, the father of the worship do him when we attribute his goodness to Christ. And mm-hmm. the reason for it is that uh, God has sent Christ to be the like perfect fulfillment and the perfect revelation. I mean, Ephesians 1 is going to say all things in the cosmos are summed up in Christ Jesus. Uh, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. So uh, the way that we receive any good gift from God is from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I do think it's very accurate to say, thank you, God, when we receive good gifts from God or blessings from God. I think it's perfectly accurate to say, thank you, Jesus, when that happens as well. If you're going to like be like, like, and listen, I don't police this in my own life. I'm certainly not going to police it in your life. I'm just glad anybody's thanking the true God for anything that's truly given. So just there you go. But I will say that like, if when you're thinking about it, we are thanking Always, like our whole life as a Christian is lived to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, like anything that we give to the Spirit, it's given to, unto Christ. Anything we give to Christ, it's given unto the Father, right? So, that is the, the kind of the order here. It's good. Um, oh, that was we the last question. Wow, <laughs> we made it to the end. These were great questions, y'all. Hey, uh, you guys are fantastic. We love your questions. If you're listening to this um, later on, um, our patrons got this in mid-December, uh, and uh, we're grateful for that Patreon community. If you're interested in finding out more stuff about Training the Church or how you can support and jump into this community, go to pay, uh, trainingthechurch.com slash support. Guys, y'all are fantastic. You ask great questions. You're thinking critically about the Bible. That is the goal. We are really thrilled to see you asking these kinds of questions. I feel like one thing that's been cool is the questions have gotten better and mm-hmm. better. Better and better over the years, which is a testament 
probably to our clarity on the show because we listen to those old episodes and ooh. Uh, but also more importantly a testimony a testament to your, your growth um, as an audience and so we're really grateful for that uh, if you're looking for Knowing Faith you can find us on Instagram Facebook and Twitter leave us a review on Apple Podcasts thank you for your support great questions hope you enjoy the discussion grace and peace <laughs>